Mini-episode 1337 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late-night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1337. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here. A special treat for all of you today. We've got our Final Four preview for 2021, and back on with us is the guy that we had on breaking down March Madness before it started, good friend, fellow original FDH Lounge dignitary Nate Noy and FDH Director of Research, and uh, this tournament has come and gone all the way to the Final Four here, the regional championships just behind us now. The upcoming weekend, we'll see the national semifinals and Monday night, the national championship game. One of the teams with essentially a de facto buy in the national semifinals. We will talk about that uh, as we go along here. But uh, we bring in a good friend, Nate Noy. Uh, Nate, I know that you have been, uh, like the rest of us, at various times amused, infuriated, and running all probably emotions in between watching this most unique of all tournaments this year. Yeah, at least I've got something consistent with my bracket from last year. And, of course, we know there was no tournament last year. I have the same number of Final Four teams correct this year as I did last year. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the only one I got is the Chalky McChalkerson one, so it might as well be zero. And I'm, I'm actually running pretty low in a bracket challenge that I'm in, which in a bad year, it, it's hard to be about six-sevenths of the way down, but that's where I am right now. So, yeah, it's just one of those years. And uh, as we look at this, uh, I, I alluded to you off here. I wanted to get to a little bit of history here at the outset as we look at this Final Four. Of course, UCLA and Houston, extraordinarily unlikely to meet in the championship game for reasons we'll get into. But in 1967 and 1968, during that great John Wooden run, they met in the Final Four. UCLA winning in the national semifinals both times. In between, it was the game of the century at the Houston Astrodome and Houston winning and breaking a very lengthy winning streak that UCLA had at the time. And uh, I was looking this up here just to confirm. Guy Lewis, the coach then, as he was for those awesome five-slamma-jamma teams of the early 80s that were so much fun. Uh, what a tremendous career uh, Guy Lewis had, bridging both of the, those eras of huge success from everything with uh, Elvin Hayes all the way through to five-slamma-jamma. Uh, again, just memories, memories, memories. The, the UCLA-Houston stuff was before our time, Nate, but you and I are both uh, basketball historians. We can both right. really appreciate that. But we both lived long enough to watch Akeem and to watch Drexler. Yep. You know, we didn't see Baylor in person, but to think somebody got to coach that span of talent is unbelievable because those are two of the top 50, three of the top 50. The top 50 NBA players of all time, the three guys we just named, yep. they all three made that list. So, you know, Drexler and uh, uh, Elijah one Dream Teamers, I mean, you can't, you can't really say much about it. And th those games, it's so funny because I remember the first time I ever heard about that game, 
I was 16, and my mom for Christmas got me this book about basketball history, and I was going through it, and they had a whole section on the game of the century. Wow. Oh, that's some good stuff. I didn't know you had that. That's incredible. And, uh, yeah, it's just the the fun kind of stuff to read and learn about. And uh, I I just happened to, as I alluded to uh, you off air, uh, I have up the, uh, so thanks to Wikipedia, the 1968 uh, March Madness uh, page. They didn't call it then, of course. It was only 32 teams. I'm just going to read you off some of the head coaches and where they were that year. Bob Cousy at Boston College. Of course, he's better known as a player. Uh, Lefty Drizel at Davidson. Dean Smith, of course, North Carolina. Lou Carnesessa, St. John's, still. Uh, Bill Fitch, first coach of my Cleveland Cavaliers. Two years before that, he coached Bowling Green to the NCAA uh, tournament. So wow. that was, uh, I didn't realize that. Uh, Bill Fitch, he coached for like 20 years and maybe seven or eight and nine different NBA teams. You should check him out. He went a long, deep way across the board. Wow, that's amazing. He did. And my, my earliest, earliest memories in person are the miracle of Richfield team and uh what what a what a just fun group of guys uh that was to uh, to root for uh adolph rupp of course at kentucky al mcguire of course at marquette fred taylor who coached ohio state to their great run in the early 60s the best run ohio state's ever had he was still wow. there right. in That's 68 <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it, uh, all those guys from hondo on down uh guy lewis of course at houston tex winter was at kansas state that year and uh, looking further, uh, Lou Henson was at North New Mexico State. Of course, John wow, Wood. that's before Illinois. That's amazing. He yeah. coached a long time. I watched him coach. Oh, yeah. Pre-Illini so. pre Lou Henson, yeah. UCLA, of course, had John Wooden. And one that I didn't know, Weaver State with Dick Mata. How about that? Well, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's, and, and that, that's just about half the coaches in the tournament that year. But, I mean, as far as the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the top half of coaches or basketball figures in history from that tournament, it's pretty noteworthy, huh? Absolutely. It is. It is like, that's, a, that's a significantly deep list. I mean, Wooden himself, of course, you take him away, you still have, you take, didn't you get Dean Smith? Yeah. Man. You know, and oh yeah. Then how many Final Fours you got left? Oh yeah, twenty, twenty probably, and then you got yeah. the NBA. I mean, those guys had those two names you named Pitch and Mata. Yeah, those are guys you just think of that made it forever. They had the knowledge in the NBA to at least keep you in the running for the playoffs. Oh yeah, you know, and the NBA is so super competitive that if you can get a coach to at least keep you in the running every year, no matter what, that's what those two guys remind me of. Guys that'll put you in the running every year, no matter what. Not the kind of guys that probably win your title, but put you in the running. Am I right? Sure. And, uh, again, I think of those guys exclusively in terms of NBA. And I'll tell you what, uh, similar to you, as somebody who got books on sports when I was a kid and, and even learning about some players before my time, I'll tell you what, I'm pretty proud of myself on this one. Just happened to be over at the house last weekend. My dad's getting stuff out of the attic. Comes across an old hoop magazine cover for, that he had up there from the 70s. And uh, there's a Detroit player on the cover, and he covers up the name, and he says to me, who's this? And I just guessed. I just pulled that out of my ass. I said, Bob Lanier? He said, yeah, it was. So he was surprised I got it. So I knew you'd be proud of me. <laughs> I, I played some what-is sports. I tried to know what Lanier looked like. Yes. <laughs> it was a lucky guess. It just happened to be a Detroit player of that time. <laughs> it's funny you brought up coaching, Rick, because there's a few things I wrote down for today. I filled a page. One of them is I looked at each of these four coaches and what their Final Four experience was, what's their background, what are their ties, what's their pedigree to be here, because 
The first time you're at the Final Four, it's really unlikely you're going to go home with a trophy. You're looking from experience. You want to have been there before. I think that's a factor when you get down to this, you know, this level of competition this much. Is that we're so little will separate these teams this weekend, one would think. You know what? Let's go there because it's interesting to me because to me it's kind of a two-and-two two kind of a situation. You have Scott Drew and Mark Few, the coaches who are favored to meet on Monday night for the national championship, they're homegrown. It, it's the whole thing of, of, of having a coach build a program up to a level and then managing to keep that coach there. What UCLA and Houston, the two programs who've been used to success in the past, UCLA, long, great stretches of success, primarily under Wooden, but they've done pretty good incrementally here and there at other times. Houston, with primarily the two stretches under Guy Lewis that we talked about, but uh, both schools who are trying to get back to that level, both of them going out in recent years and getting somebody to try to rebuild them and doing so successfully, at least in this point in time, for where they've been built. Kelvin Sampson at Houston and Mick Cronin at UCLA. Uh, as Mick Cronin becomes the second coach ever behind Shaka Smart in uh, uh, 2011 at VCU to lead a team from the first four to the final four. So it's two different kind of formulas here, the two opposite ends of the spectrum. A homegrown guy who, who carries a program up to where it hasn't been previously, and then subsequent, or, or in the case of Baylor, at least since what, like 1950 or whenever. And then in the case of the other two programs, recruiting a coach, to come in, somebody that, that uh, looks to take a leap up into that job and carry that program into better things. Kelvin Sampson had done it at a few places previously, Mick Cronin at Cincinnati, and both have been able to replicate that at least thus far in these jobs. You, you made great points there, Rick, and, and to start with, with, with Drew, I mean, he's been at Baylor for 18 years, and he yep. turned Baylor, Baylor into a winner. He won Coach of the Year a couple years back, and he stayed, like you said. I mean, he's not going anywhere. He's, he's 50. Yeah, he's, he's, he's where he's staying. He's been there eighteen years. He, they he they did him right. He makes like four million a year or something, and they did him right. And he's going to stay right there. He's going to hope to continue to compete in the Big Twelve. This is finally that he's finally in the Final Four. You know, they they've won some regular season things and or they've won the conference tournament, uh, but never got to this point. And then, like you said, with you, that's his team. That's his brand. Yep, he's fifty eight. He's not going anywhere. Brand Gonzaga. It's him. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he'll 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 retire in that job. I mean, he's going to be synonymous with them. Statue of him, right? Exactly. Why would you ever do anything else? Oh yeah, I mean, pretty much like you know Krasuski with Duke and that kind of a thing. That's what Few is going to be to that program, uh, and deservedly so. And this is his uh, best team to this point. I want to throw uh, two things about the coach. Oh yeah, Few's best team. This is it. But yeah, this kid doesn't get it now. Doesn't mean he doesn't have another chances later. Sure. Because the, the way that the the way the college basketball is now set up, don't kid yourself. Gonzaga is absolutely on the exact same level with the Power Five. There's no doubt in my mind. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> well, not only that. Not at all. <laughs> and it's it's funny because we've gone back and forth a little bit uh, since our uh, segment that we did previewing the tournament here, and and you were basically a little bit bemused at various points about uh, everybody seeming to put this Gonzaga team on a level with the 1990. Uh, UNLV squad, and I will say one of the similarities is uh, if Gonzaga goes all the way here, that was the breakthrough year for Tark's team, and shockingly in retrospect, the only championship they ended up taking home because of Duke's shocking upset in the 91 Final Four, uh, but it was it was a breakthrough year for the UNLV program, one where they would not be stopped, and Gonzaga certainly carries that air this year. 
I'm with you 100% on that, Rick. And you have to also get that we're in the COVID era. A lot of things were completely different this year than in the past. A lot of these programs, a lot of these kids were never really in peak shape, i got to tell you. Yeah. I, when they shut down the ability for these teams to have contact with the players, they did not get the physical training without the supervision on their own that they would otherwise with the supervision. Don't let anyone on the planet Earth try to argue that they did because they did not. So what we have now is the few teams that were able to, you know, look at these guys that have this. Now, again, you got a couple that are recent hires, but great talent. Now they're in the Final Four. What kind of advantage did Hugh and Drew have with the 20 years, 18 years of experience? You know, who knows what kind of – you've got a system in place. And so when you've got a system in place, your seniors run the system. You don't run your system. So everybody's coordinating, doing everything the same way at the same time. Don't think that those two schools weren't in shape and did almost everything they always did this year that they did years before. It wasn't like that across all 380 schools in Division One, but it certainly was like that in these two, and I think we're seeing that. They've been the two with separation from the field the whole season. They have so. been, and it's really interesting, though, uh, because uh, generally speaking, when you get to a Final Four, uh, and even in a very, very unusual year like this one with, with the whole COVID overhang to the season, the entire NCAA tournament being in, in the Indiana area, uh, Indianapolis and the uh, surroundings uh, are pretty close by, even in a year like this, you get a little bit of different shading sometimes here with some of the programs involved. And with Mick Cronin and UCLA, conversely, yeah, you bring in uh, Johnny Juzang from uh, Kentucky. You think they could have used him this year? I mean, a, a guy that they uh, really couldn't make use of a year ago, uh, and he comes in and is doing some big things here uh, this year. The so, monster game last game. Just oh yeah, him, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so sometimes uh, it, it's the additions that are made as well. Plus, uh, obviously uh, Gonzaga having a great year in terms of recruits as they often do and getting a guy on the level that they don't generally get because Gonzaga does not uh, tend to specialize as much in slam dunk one and duns like Jalen Suggs uh, and, and ironically again he hasn't even been the best player they've had in, in the tournament arguably maybe the second or maybe even third best player in the tournament thus far so you're right about that in terms of the continuity and some of these programs that have made it this far uh, they've been able to draw off of the lessons of the past and apply them to this year in terms of obtaining stability. But you've also had some guys coming in this year that have just kind of turbocharged what was already in place. I agree with that across the board with this. Let me ask you this very quick. What I was thinking is I was thinking as UCLA team, mm -hmm. what, if, what if the ball boy hadn't gotten sticky fingers <laughs> in China and there were two balls on this team and Steve Alford was the coach? Yeah. They'd be They'd have a one beside their name instead of a one one, right? Maybe, and, and maybe they'd be on the other side of the bracket from Gonzaga, but they're not. The kid had sticky fingers. He's not playing professional sports. His brothers are, right? And I think you know how good one of his brothers is. You you've done some preview action on him, but uh, yeah, very much so. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I it's one of those things where. UCLA, I mean, they're certainly ahead of schedule as far as uh, what we were figuring would be uh, the case for them. Uh, Cronin went in and has been starting to uh, to build the program pretty well, and they've, they've had some false starts previously. I mean, U UCLA has had, you know, brief snippets, whether it be in the mid-90s, whether it be in uh, the mid to late 2000s, of where the program looked like it was kind of on the way back, only for it not to stick. So we'll see uh, if what Cronin is building there is of more of a lasting nature. 
But uh, you've, you've got Jacquez Jr. there. I mean, they're going to need him to have the game of his life, to have any kind of chance whatsoever against Gonzaga. And Juzang uh, and uh, a whole bunch of these guys, in addition to the clampdown defense that they've been playing, that they were able to put on Michigan. Now, Michigan also choked and was making bad shots, but the defense of UCLA has really been the story of the tournament for them. Absolutely, and the real key to that is the amazing defense from the perimeter for UCLA. Yes. Now, Michigan, when they put those bad shots, only 11 of those were free. Right. They were three for 11 from three. If you look at the games prior, uh, the first game, the play-in game, Sparty went six for 18, and after that, they were awesome. They put BYU three for 17 from the from the arc. Avalon Christian, four for 19, and Alabama, and then up and down, 88-78 game, they only went seven for 28. Seven for 28. That's not the way to do it. That's not how you win basketball games. Their perimeter defense, they've shut down threes like we can't imagine. Um, if they can do that against Gonzaga, I would say that's, that's the formula. That's the only formula. This game has to be in the 60s at best. If it sees a seven, Gonzaga's got the game over. It has to stay in the sixes for them to have a chance. And their defense has to be unreal on the perimeter. The problem is, Gonzaga is a team that doesn't really rely that much on the three. They shoot 20 a game. They hit 7.6. The last game in, the, in a dome, they went 7 for 21. So right on the numbers. They played the game in the dome last game. They went 7 for 21. Their average is 7.6 and 20.5. Round one down just slightly. Round one up just slightly right where they should be. So UCLA is going to have to step up. And the only thing, the only way to have a prayer is Gonzaga can't hit any threes, get frustrated, which could lead to worse taken twos, as you just said, bad shots. Worst twos don't show up on the on the on the scoreboard on the, on the box score. Worst twos do show up on you know like charts that show up from the field, and they also show up in the face of the players when you watch the frustration. They do, uh, but uh, as I noted on uh, a story on CBS Sports earlier today, uh, and I don't know what statistic this is. Uh, unless it's just straight two-point percentage, uh, quote, the most lethal two-point scoring offense in college basketball history. So Gonzaga, Gonzaga doesn't take bad uh, two-point shots. Wow. So, right, a well-coached team with, with experienced players. They have the perfect formula. Just throw two numbers, the, the, the lines, the consensus numbers in Vegas right now for that game, right? Mm-hmm. 14. 14's the line, which is crazy for a Final Four. 14. The total is 145. That gives you two critical numbers of 79.5 for Gonzaga. So if you bet Gonzaga in the over, if they don't score 80, you can't win. And this, the critical number for UCLA is 65.5. So that's what the, that's where Vegas puts these teams to score. They think Gonzaga will score seventy nine and a half, UCLA sixty five and a half. Like I said, that game has to stay in the sixties for UCLA to have any chance at all, at all. Well, they're not going to win eighty six to eighty eight against Gonzaga. They're going to win sixty three to sixty two. Well, here's the thing, too. I mean, fourteen points. You're right. It feels ridiculous for a Final Four, but off the top of my head. It doesn't feel like it's enough either. I mean, this this one really, really feels like it could get ugly, uh, and and in the first half, it, it's funny. I'm gonna I'm gonna give uh, uh, credit here to uh, I I'll refer to him and and I say this admiringly, so not as a put down, but uh, handicapper slash entertainer cousin Sal with a great tweet last night. He was doing early predictions on what the lines would be. That uh, if Gonzaga played Michigan, it would be minus nine. If Gonzaga played UCLA, it would be minus thirteen. If Gonzaga played both of them, it would be minus four. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that's that's what they're up against. Then a team that under Mark Few uh, that takes on his calm personality, they're not going to melt down. Uh, this is as close to a foregone conclusion, basically, as, as you ever get. I mean, look, I mean, in a COVID year, anything can happen. God forbid, uh, you know, Drew Timmy or somebody comes down with it. I mean, he's been the player of the tournament thus far here, and Corey Kispert as well, just really doing well, just an, an excellent and, and deep Gonzaga team for as star-laden as they are. They still manage to be deep. And uh, what we thought was going to be uh, potentially a really, really, really epic semifinal against Michigan ends up not coming to pass. So I haven't seen yet uh, which game is in which spot here but uh, Saturday night, but uh, that can't be the one that they're looking to draw the big uh, ratings. That's not, That can't be the prime time game. Uh, as it no, were. That's got, that, that's got formula for ugly, Rick. Like I said, the Sagarin's difference is 11 here, uh-huh. and, and I really believe that UCLA go all out. That, that 51 to 49 game is a preview of what they want to make this Gonzaga game. Uh, obviously, I don't think they have the strength, the strength to blanket that kind of game. 100 points, come on now. Right. But if I was going to wager on the game, I would absolutely think that UCLA will keep it under 145 and within 14. Two touchdowns and a two extra points <laughs> in the final four? Yeah. Nah, give me, give me that. And I'll hope the game stays in the 60s. Like I said, that number of 79.5, if Gonzaga gets going, they really might get going and put a nine on the board or maybe a triple digit. It's possible this team could be the running Rebs. We saw what they did to Duke in the final. They put the triple digit up. Maybe Gonzaga's looking to match that. Possible, right? It, it is It is possible. And then, uh, again, as somebody who is a lifelong Cavs fan, I flash back to the 90s and Mike Fratello. I mean, if you're UCLA, you got to think it's going to be the milk-the-clock strategy. But you know what? If, if you're getting uh, stomped in the face by 18 points, I'm not sure you want to you know, milk it down to two seconds on the clock before you put your shots up. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you fall behind like that. Great call. But like I said, if, 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 you, if Gonzaga wins 95-42, to 42, uh-huh. the game's under. The yeah. game's under. <laughs> UCLA still has to get somewhere around a five, yeah. or else the game stays under. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing there, again, we talked about the Final Four coach experience. The fact you've been there already, and this is the first time for Cronin, that, that's an advantage again for Gonzaga. There, you got to believe Gonzaga's going to win this game. Like I said, if I was going to wager, I'm not. Uh, I'd like UCLA and under. But if I'm going to pick a team, you got to pick Gonzaga. How could they lose this game? They're way better. The, the gap between an 11 seed and a 1, the gap between the play-in team and the one overall yeah. is the gap between the entire tournament. This is the last team we put in versus the best team we put in. Yeah. The whole field. The whole field is the gap. I mean, here's let's just put this in perspective, okay? This is the final four. Just to make it to the Sweet 16, if you're Gonzaga, you had to play an 8 or a 9, okay? You had to beat a higher seed just to make it to the Sweet 16. This is not a put-down of UCLA, but simple mathematics, as far as if you look at the course of the entire season. Exactly. So. This is the second easiest team they faced in the tournament. Yeah. I mean, you have to go back to round <laughs> one, essentially. If you're just looking on paper, if you're just looking at the seeds, that's the way it is. And this has been the most upset-laden tournament. Uh, I think it broke the record as far as uh, they consider it to be when there's a difference of five places in the seedings. I think there's been 14 upsets by that standard. The previous record, I think there was two tournaments where it had been 13 times. So it's just been a lot of upsets all the way through. Having said that, though, we were this close. We were this close to a Final Four 
with uh, what would have been three number ones, right? Because Michigan was a three ones and a two. Uh, instead, it ends up being uh, two ones, a two, and an 11. And this was the effect that we thought we were going to see come Elite Eight of there's been the whole thing of the, the, these upset teams that have come through predominantly from the Pac-12, it seems like, and that this is where they're all going to go down and where the chalk is going to reassert itself. And obviously it did not do so uh, in the East bracket here. Uh, in, in, in the West, Gonzaga getting past USC uh, in the end. In the South and in the Midwest, that is how it played out, uh, where two very high seeds make it this far, Baylor and Houston, so you actually get a uh, battle in the state of uh, Texas here. And, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, the, the committee's not upset. They got the L.A. marketing gauge. They got the Brandon Gonzaga. They got the Texas marketing gauge. Both Houston and Dallas are top seven, eight markets. And the NCAA is a happy camper right now. These teams are there. They're ecstatic with what they got in the Final Four. True. So. And it's, it's funny, but, like, if you're looking at the state of Texas, uh, you know, like, Clearly, there's not really what you'd consider to be any kind of a rivalry or anything like that between these teams. They're not teams that have played in the same conference. Uh, again, a lot of times, you know, Texas carries more weight uh, than anybody else in the state of Texas because Baylor and Houston being here is kind of similar to 2019 when it was Texas Tech. You know, it's like it's a school in Texas, and yes, it does carry some weight in that regard, uh, but it's, it's not really the signature program in the state the way that Texas is. And ironically, Texas... Uh, ends up looking for a new coach right about at this point in time as two of the programs uh, considered to be somewhat below them on the pecking order in the state are in the national semifinals. Uh, again, to put it another way, this isn't like when it was Kentucky and Louisville uh, meeting in the uh, national semifinals here. I remember reading at the time, I think that there was, there was a, like a brawl in a dialysis clinic or something like that between people. I mean, that's the kind of passions, as you would know, Nate, that you get in the bluegrass state when you have a major rivalry like that ignited on that stage. Right, Rick, and you just pointed it all out. These teams don't play each other anywhere. They're not in the same conference. There's a wide gap in terms of geography. I mean, major, completely different TV markets, and completely different types of people. you got those deep south Texans versus those northern Texans. Sure. You're talking 300 miles, different people. It's like the whole state of Ohio. Well, <laughs> like Pennsylvanians versus Indianans. They're not the same people. They're stayed away from each other. So it's Exactly. And... As far as uh, what you're saying about the TV ratings, though, the only counterpoint I would make to that is no Duke or North Carolina slash no Syracuse slash no Kentucky. East of the Mississippi, what's this thing going to be? Uh, east of the Mississippi, <coughs> Jim Feist. <coughs> but uh, as far as that goes, you know, I, I just I wonder about how that's going to play out as far as, you know, you're, you're, you're right. You have the concentration in Texas. You have the concentration on the West Coast. But in the stretches of flyover country between Texas and the West Coast on both sides, really, how's that going to play TV-wise? My guess is not great. You're going to say no. I'm going to say that the, the people on the East Coast love the brother frontrunners, man. I think they all embrace Gonzaga because they're so good and they're kicking some butt. And they all got them in their bracket. And they want to watch them. I think Gonzaga is a great, a great sell for this tournament. They need to stay in it. Though. Now that's an interesting point. Yes, because they've been kind of a, they've become a national brand. I think with the year that they've had and, and this kind of step up. Two to one. They were two to one to win this tournament. So East Coast Sharpies, when they filled out their bracket, went straight to Vegas lines and said, "Wow, this team's two to one. They're winning." 
So the, everybody on the East Coast sitting there holding their Gonzaga wins at all bracket, yeah, you, you know, I don't know who's eliminated, who's not here and there, but, you know, you're still wanting to watch this tournament. You want to be the guy that was right about it, even though everybody's going to be right about it because the team's so good. <laughs> I got to say, Nate, that's an excellent counterpoint to what I said because, like, when Duke is in the Final Four, as much as they as a program make me want to vomit, I mean, I can't deny they have a national following. Uh, the, the ratings are probably good pretty much across the country when they're in it, and Gonzaga might be getting to that point, uh, and they've been in a Final Four uh, national championship game within the last couple of years, so they're getting to be more of a known commodity on, on that stage even before this monster-type year. So Baylor and Houston, obviously this projects as being uh, the closer of the two national semifinals, and uh, this is one where Again, uh, Davion Mitchell has just really been getting it going for uh, Baylor, and uh, he's just been really keying everything that they've had going with that attack. Uh, their three-point uh, shooting attack, 41.1%. Uh, again, we had some questions about whether three-point shooting was going to be strong going into this tournament uh, because of the sight lines and no fans, but uh, hasn't stopped Baylor thus far, and uh, they have looked let, more... Let me jump in with your yeah. three-point analysis. Game one, they got the advantage of being in the dome. I told you that at the time. They were you setting did. us up to be here. They were 11 for 33. That's not a bad number. Yeah. The next two games out of the dome, they went 8 for 17, which is awesome. Then they went 3 for 19 in that game against Nova, but that's a different kind of game, and we won't even need to worry about that. The next game in the dome where they, they put the hurt on... Um, yeah, I can't. Cray, Creighton, right? Uh, yeah, it was it was Creighton. Uh, thanks for reminding me. My Bobcats came a game short. <laughs> but anyway, eight for fifteen. So an eight for fifteen in a dome. Yeah. Eight for fifteen in the dome. That means yeah. they hit more than half their shots. They only took fifteen of them. They might put that volume back up. That thirty-three. What if they go seventeen for thirty-three? That's a huge number. They shot for the season. 41.1%, like you said. A team that shoots 41% is extremely dangerous, and they just proved they can shoot in the dome 8 for 15. How are you going to stop them? We'll come to that in a moment when we talk Houston. But that's a scary, you know, they, they, and, they, and their defense, here are the games. They're their opponents. 3 for 13, 3 for 17. Wisconsin was 8 for 21, and Hartford was 5 for 22. So 3, 3, 8, and 5. Teams aren't shooting threes against them and making them either. This is extremely bad. Look, uh, bad, you know, in terms of the trends for the tournament thus far, Houston is uh, facing an uphill battle when they look at the, when we look at the trends. Oh, they really, really are. And uh, again, though, the thing is, when you miss three point shots, uh, that is something that is very likely to go as uh, a defensive uh, rebound there. Uh, so you you leave yourself vulnerable on that, Houston. Uh, is a team that, again, as it is, they already maximized their advantages on the glass in terms of offensive rebounding. They've done really, really well in this tournament throughout the season. And, uh, again, they're a team where I wonder a little bit about them in terms of kind of a glass jaw because uh, they, they are the first team in uh, the NCAA tournament history to advance to the Final Four without having beaten anyone other than a double-digit seed. Everything really just kind of broke their way uh, from that first game against uh, number 15 Cleveland State on down. Uh, they've managed to keep getting the double-digit seeds because of all the upsets that really kind of uh, played into their hands. And that goes back to what I said before about uh, the way that the, 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 the you'd eventually see chalk prevailing in most of these regions because of uh, the upsets that happened. Houston 
by far in this field the biggest beneficiary of that. And uh, again, if Baylor's got a bad night on the glass, that could play into Houston's overall uh, rebounding strength. But uh, again, it, it looks to me to be pretty uphill as well in terms of the firepower that Baylor can bring. And I just kind of wonder, I mean, with all due respect to Quentin Grimes, who has been uh, just absolutely uh, terrific, uh, I wonder if Houston can keep up with them. I don't think that they can. I'm with you completely on this, Rick. I look at Houston on the, first, on the season, and one thing that jumped out at me, it was their three-point shooting percentage against. They held teams to 28.3%, which was far and away the best in this Final Four. But I looked at the actual tournament, and I know Houston plays in a much weaker conference, and they do, and their defense in this tournament in terms of the three-point arc has not been there. Cleveland State went 6 for 15. That's 40%. Yeah. Rutgers went 7 for 16. That's 47%. So the Q's couldn't hit. They went 5 for 23. But then last game against Oregon State, Oregon State, let's see, they went uh, 6 for 16. That's 38%. We already said Baylor shoots 41%. It doesn't matter what you did against the scrub teams. It matters what you do against guys that shoot threes and doesn't have, and don't have any problem shooting them in the dome. Right. Uh-oh. I don't like their chances at all. I think Baylor will just destroy Houston. I, I think so as well. And uh, as you said, I mean, there's, there's a chance that I wouldn't rule out that uh, Baylor wins that game. Uh, potentially even more than Gonzaga in theirs, although I think Gonzaga is, is going to win uh, fairly cleanly and decisively, and there may not even be much of that game left by halftime on Saturday night. That would bring us to, again, irresistible force, immovable object, Baylor-Gonzaga for the national championship. How about that? Wow, it's going to be interesting if that's what it ends up being. Real quick on that last one, those critical numbers there, it's 5 and 135, that's 70 and 65. Baylor had Scores of 76, 79, and 81 in this tournament. So if you like Baylor, you should probably play it over because you're going to score 80 points. Yeah. In terms of that national championship, if we get it, it's going to be over 170 points probably. They're going to run up and down the floor like madmen, and the man that can stand the longest is going to win the game. That's what I think it would be. Whoever can get to 95 first wins it all. Really? Okay, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing here too. And that's – if, if, if it's a night where Baylor just can't miss from behind the line, they can pull the upset. If they, if they can be hitting those threes like that, they definitely can win, uh, and, and, and they, could, they could win by five or six points or so if that is the case because that's what they're capable of. But anytime I'm looking at it and, and I have to make that specific a case for one of the two teams, I'm obviously going to go the other way. Don't know what the line would be. Don't know if I can say that uh, I would lay the points or not, not uh, having any kind of an idea what it's going to be. But uh, I like Gonzaga to cut down the nets and be the first undefeated national champion since Indiana in 1976. Wow. And uh, that line, my guess, Rick, six would be the Sagarin difference, but 11 was the difference in this game, and it got a three-point inflation because the public loves Gonzaga. So six to nine. Somewhere in their range. Maybe they'll put it at seven in the hook. Maybe okay. It out. I don't know. They don't want to be too too dangerous with it because Baylor's going to get some action as a good team. But let's not kid ourselves. How can they stop this team? The only way they can do it, they're going to have to hit what they did, but they're going to have to shoot way more threes. That eight for 15 needs to be 16 for 30. If they go 16 from 30 behind the arc, Baylor will cut down the nets. If they do anything less than over 50% from behind the arc, they don't have the firepower to stick with them. Like you said, Gonzaga, historically the best two-point shooting team ever. So there it is. It's going to be up and down if they make it to this. Don't play the under. You're going to see a number at like 158 over that. It's going like 170. 
Exactly, yeah. To be exciting. Unless, of course, Baylor can't hit a three because it's the dome. Because <laughs> they already had a game this tournament where they went three for 19. In their case, Gonzaga wins by 25, just like the 90 Rebs did against Duke. Well, and I, I get into uh, spirited uh, discussions, shall we say, debates with fellow FDH lounge dignitary Ben Chu about regression theory and how it works. But that three for 19, perfectly natural after having games where you were that hot uh, behind the line. I will say conversely, this is a thing where, because I, I completely agree with you, Baylor, to a certain extent, has to turn their strategy upside down if they're in that game on Monday night. Uh, to where they take, like you said, potentially even twice the number of threes and really kind of retool what their uh, schematics are going to be to that. If that's a night where they're like, you know, four for 28, this one could be bowling shoe ugly, as Jim Ross would say. You got it. I think we just nailed it right there. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the way it's going. Drop, and mic drop. That's it. There's thank nothing you. else you can say about this tournament. Kobe did it. There it was. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, the man of this march thus far has been Drew Timmy for Gonzaga, who amusingly, FDH Lounge dignitary Bob Glassman has dubbed as being a doppelganger of mine. So as I said to him, you know, you could you could name worse people for that, I suppose. I'll take that. That's fine. Uh, but uh, this is going to be a very interesting climax to the tournament, but uh, it's been a very interesting tournament. Uh, and yet, still not so interesting as our preview of the Final Four and our preview of March Madness as a whole a couple weeks back. Nate Noy, as always, I can't thank you enough, my friend. Thanks, Rick. It's always a pleasure. And uh, enjoy the weekend of basketball. Thank goodness we have it back this year. Absolutely. It's going to be awesome. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to FDH Lounge Mini, episode 1337. <laughs>